Hello and welcome to the So What podcast, in which political economic analyst J.P. Lantman discusses the issues uppermost in the minds of South Africans. You can find a written version of this content on J.P.'s website, jplantman.co.za. I am Ruda Lantman and I am your host. These first few recordings were done at our dining room table, but we will soon be moving into a studio. Hello, and a very warm welcome to another recording to go with JP's newsletter. This one is dated the 23rd of November 2022, and the heading COP27 and South Africa, a basic introduction. I think we need to, as you do in your first paragraph, uh, sort out some some background, some jargon. Why is it called COP? Why is it 27? Why is Paris important in the history? And how does South Africa fit in? Yeah, no, indeed, those are, uh, those are the starting points. COP is simply the Convention of the Parties. The full title is the Convention of the Parties of the United Nations Climate Change Conference. So this is a conference that has been held every year now for 27 years. The first one, COP1, was in 1993, uh, and yeah, as I say, it's been going on every year. South Africa has got a long political commitment to the COP process. We were involved from the very first one. We also hosted uh, COP17 in Durban in, in South Africa, uh, and the whole COP process actually came out of the Johannesburg Sustainable Development Conference, which was held way back before, before that time. Paris is important because over the 27 years, the parties uh, to the United Nations Conference on Climate Change have struggled to reach meaningful consensus on what can be done about climate change. Uh, an agreement was reached at Kyoto, but uh, George Bush, previous US president, withdrew all the United States from that agreement. So it collapsed. Then the parties had to start all over again. And then in 2015, an agreement was made at Paris. And the Paris Agreement essentially said that the nations of the world commit themselves to take steps to reduce carbon emissions to a level sustainable with an increase in global temperatures of not more than one and a half to two percent. South Africa was part of that agreement. President Zuma was then the president of the country. He was in Paris. He agreed to it. And the following year, in April 2016, uh, Edna Muleva, who was uh, late minister in the cabinet of Zuma, uh, signed the agreement, the physical document, on behalf of South Africa. So, yeah, we've had a, a long commitment to this convention of the parties. It's about climate change. Um, and the the commitment that South Africa has made, like so many things in the Zuma government, the ideas were articulated, but they were not implemented. Two years ago, in 2021, South Africa actually sipped a target for a number for the reduction in carbon emissions from the country to be sustainable or to be uh, on a level with a climate change of 1.5 degrees Celsius. And the government determined that to be 350 to 375 tons per annum, the, the maximum number of, of tons that can be emitted. Now, at that stage, Judah, we were admitting as a country about 450 tons. It has come down to 420 but from 420 to 350 to 375 is still 17% production. And that is what the Just Economic Transition Plan is about. 
It sets out the practical steps that need to be taken to achieve that 17% reduction, but it also sets out the money side, how you're going to pay for it and fund this reduction. Where do we fit into the global picture? Are we a big emitter? Does this matter? Yes, we are a big emitter. We are, if you just look at the number of tons of carbon emissions, carbon equivalent emissions, then we are the 13th largest in the world. Now, if you think that our economy is about 28 or 29th in size, if you think that the countries like the US, like China, India, much, much bigger countries and much bigger economies than ours, for us to be number 13 on the list is quite high. If you adjust for population and you look at emissions per capita, uh, then we come in at about number 15 in the world, still higher. So our per capita emissions are sitting at about 7.5 tons per person per year, and the global average is about 4.8. So we are, we are a very big emitter in the world terms. Why is that the case? Why are we such a big emitter? I suppose the short answer is, is history catching up with us. It's coal. South Africa generates, at least used to generate, almost 100% of its electricity from coal. Plus, we have a sinfield industry, which is a very successful industry and has served South Africa very well, but it has had enormous negative consequences around coal. So what are those negative consequences? Well, carbon emissions is number one, but there's also environmental and a health dimension. You go into Mpumalanga, where most of the coal activities are concentrated, there are a range of indicators indicating that the people living there are suffer severe health consequences, health disadvantages. You look at the pollution of soil, you look at the pollution of water. These things are all the downside of coal. So coal on the one hand was very good for us, but coal on the other hand has been very bad for us and has certainly been bad for our emissions. And, and that's why we need to do something about it. So do we have a plan? Yes, that is the whole point of the so-called JET, Just Energy Transition. It's a plan for how we can move from where we are to where we want to go. But it's also a plan for trying to manage the, the negative consequences uh, of this transition. A lot of people will lose their jobs. A lot of small towns will close down. A lot of businesses will close down, use their, their business models. So you have to try and manage these things as well as you can. And that is what is called JET or Just Energy Transition. It's a 216-page document the government has published. This note is merely uh, the briefest of summaries. But it's a very comprehensive plan of where we want to go. And essentially, it talks about the three priorities, electricity, new energy vehicles, and hydrogen. Now, the, the plan will cost about, in round terms, 1.5 trillion rand over five years. 1.48 actually over five years, 70% of that money will be spent on electricity. Can I just put that in perspective? What is South Africa's uh, national GDP. budget per year? Well, the, our GDP is about, this year will be about 6 trillion rand. So 1.5 is an enormous chunk. But that's, of course, it's 1.5 spread over over five years. But it's still, it's still a lot. And if you bring into consideration that most of that 1.5 trillion over 1.3 trillion will be capital expenditure, uh, infrastructure expenditure, then, then you can see that it's going to have a huge impact on, uh, on the country. So as I've said, 70% of the, of the money will go to electricity. Uh, what will that be used for? 
it'll be used for uh, the first, the biggest item will be to build more and new capacity. About 46% of that money will be spent on building new wind farms and new solar solar farms. Uh, so it's, it's clear which way the wind is blowing, so to speak. The second biggest project, about 130 billion rand will be spent on upgrading the South African transmission grid so then you've got to accommodate all these renewables. It's no good having wind farms and solar farms and you can't get the electricity generated there spread over the country to wherever it is needed. To do that, we've got to upgrade the grid and that'll be about 131 billion. Uh, and then the third element of electricity is the distribution systems, i.e. electricity inside municipalities. Now, we all know how that infrastructure has been neglected and depleted in most cases, if not all. And you will have to spend a lot of money to, to upgrade that and bring that to the level that is needed. And the money uh, envisaged for that is about $200 billion. Now, in the context of emissions, which is where this whole thing starts, ESCOM is going to close down nine of its 15 coal-fired power stations. Actually, it is now eight of 14 because Kumati closed down on 31 October. They switched the last unit off at quarter to 12 on the 36th. So there are now 14 coal-fired power stations. Eight of them will be closed down, and you have to replace that with something else. And the replacement will be larger than new, but also a bit of gas and probably a bit of nuclear. In the context of emissions, the closing down of those nine or now eight power stations will cut the coal consumption for electricity production by 50%. It will cut it from 113 million, million tons per year to about 55, 56 million tons. So it's a huge cut in, in coal consumption, and that will help to bring down our emissions. They're aiming to do that by, what did you say? The date for closing down the power stations, the last date is 2034. It'll happen in phases, but the last one will be out by 2034. Now, you think that is now, that's only about, it's half 2022. It's only 12 years away. It's actually not, you know, at one time. So you have to really move to get renewables and other sources of power generation into the system before you close down the last uh, of those power stations. The second element is the new energy vehicles. That's not something that's so much on our radar. No, not at all. And, and note the category. The category is new energy vehicles, not just electric vehicles, although that is where the attention is. It is also using hydrogen as an energy source for particularly heavy transport. Now, and your platinum, for example, is running those huge trucks that they, that they use for mining uh, at the mine in Mokhalakwina, um, uh, using now hydrogen trucks. It's quite an astonishing thing. So uh, the idea is that you slowly expand the frontier and go from those big trucks to, to other trucks running on the highways, to buses, if possible, to trains, and of course, aeroplanes. Those are your big energy uh, emitters. And if you can deal with them by way of electricity and, and hydrogen, it will make a big contribution to the reduction in emissions. The nice thing about new energy vehicles, as in the case of, of Anglo-Platinum, the private sector can do the investment. They will make the money out of it, out of selling electric vehicles, as, as they're currently doing. Uh, they'll make the money out of new infrastructure, which is put up to accommodate the vehicles. 
So one can expect them to, to do the bulk of the investment in this category of new electric vehicles, just as private companies are doing almost all the investment in renewable energy up to date. It's a typical private sector activity. And then the third element, green hydrogen, what does that mean? Yeah, hydrogen, you know, think of hydrogen in terms of uh, colors. Hydrogen is being manufactured at the moment in the world. It's called gray hydrogen, white gray, because fossil fuels are used to produce the hydrogen. When you switch from fossil fuels in the production to renewables, then the resultant hydrogen is called green hydrogen. Uh, it is called pink hydrogen if you use nuclear power. And it is called blue if you use fossil fuels, but you do capturing of the carbon emissions. So these, these colors tell us about different processes. And the, essentially, the point is to switch the worlds to do two things. First of all, switch hydrogen production from current gray, that is using fossil fuels, to green, which is using renewables. Uh, but secondly, also to expand the fields and the areas of natural life where hydrogen can be used. Hydrogen has got three problems, basically. There's a price problem, and there is a, a safety problem. If hydrogen interacts with, uh, with oxygen, it can lead to a, a huge blow-up. And thirdly, storage. It's not that easy to restore and transport hydrogen. But, you know, a lot of people are investing a lot of time and money into pushing the technology frontiers of all these areas, as Anglo Platinum is doing at their mind. So I would expect huge progress to come in the next couple of years. The, the war that Russia has launched on Ukraine uh, will also help. At the moment, we see some regulations. That's inevitable because it's an emergency situation. But what the war has done is to illustrate how vulnerable the world is to fossil fuel suppliers, and that is spurring particularly the Germans on to look at alternatives. And the German chancellor has been here to South Africa, on a state visit, and as I said to people, the visit only lasted about 20 hours. Uh, even the Luftwaffe couldn't fly from Berlin to Johannesburg and back in 20 hours. You know, you flew more than the time you spent on the ground here. Why did the Chancellor do it? Well, he's done it to come and sign agreements with the government, but also with Cecil around developing hydrogen technologies for use in Germany or for use in the world, but essentially sponsored by the German government. So hydrogen is the next big thing where, where a lot of energy and money and the search for new technology will go on. You and I have been to the west coast of South Africa, to Wachelbay, which is 60 kilometers north of Podmolov, between Podmolov and the mouth of the Orange River, the border with Namibia. There's nothing there, as you would recall, but the idea is to, the feasibility studies are going on now, to build a deep sea harbor there. Uh, and not just a deep sea harbor, but also a railway line, and to use that as a point for exporting hydrogen to Europe. So I would expect over the next 10 years for hydrogen in South Africa to become a major economic activity and exporting it to world markets. You have touched on this. All of this is going to cost enormous amounts of money. Well, what does the funding plan look like? Yeah, uh, that is in a sense the most... Not the most interesting, but it is an interesting part of the of the basic jet plan. As we've discussed earlier, it'll cost about 1.5 trillion over the first five years, and of course much more thereafter. 
must just remember South Africa has not only made a goal now for reducing carbon emissions, it also set the goal of being carbon neutral by 2050. So it's an ongoing process. It's not something that will stop after five years. But the first five years will cost 1.5 trillion. Now, a group of countries and the European Union and the World Bank, basically the UK, the US, France, Germany, those four countries, the EU and the climate change funds, which are administered by the World Bank, so it's all in all six players, have contributed uh, 8.5 billion US dollars to this just economic transition of South Africa. You work at an exchange rate of 15 to 1, which is perhaps conservative. You're looking at 128 billion rand that will come into the country. Most of that money, the first phase, not all of it, but most of it will probably be used to upgrade the grid. The first monies have already uh, come in. France and Germany have signed agreements with the National Treasury in South Africa for 600 million euros, euros, not dollars, of uh, concessional funding, cheap funding. 20 years, five-year grace period, interest rate uh, about three and a quarter percent. So that money will flow into Treasury, and Treasury can then allocate the two programs around just transition. Then we had 495 million US dollars, that's about 9 billion rand, which is being linked by the World Bank ISCOM, again on very favorable terms, for ISCOM to do the repurposing of the commodity power station. Now there's a difference between closing something down and repurposing. The repurposing will cost money, and the idea is to help ISCOM to achieve that and change what is there now from coal to renewables. So that money has, uh, has also come in. And then an interesting development is the third channel of money so far are from international charity organizations. There's a very interesting list of them. There's a Bezos Foundation, for example. Clearly, while Mr. Bezos is busy trying to fly to the moon or wherever, he also has a charity that's looking after, wants to look after this environment here on the planet. And they are sponsoring mainly training and research activities, things for which there is no commercial return. $10 million uh, in one case and 180 million rand in another case to do training and in general help with just transition at Komaki and now also at Slipslane, which will be another power station that will close down. So you've got these, you've got governments, you've got uh, international institutions, uh, multilateral banks, and you've got international charities, those three. And then, of course, South Africa itself would, would have to invest, and the way it will come is by way of private sector investment, as we've, as we've discussed. The private sector of both the solar industry and the wheat industry so far in South Africa, I foresee that they will build the electric vehicle industry in South Africa. I foresee that they will build the hydrogen industry. Those are all classic private sector investments because they a return. Kumati is really an example of how this can play out, and it makes the, the just transition much more tangible. Yeah, absolutely. So what's happening at Kumati, as I've already said, they closed it down and switched the last unit off from 31 October. And what they're doing there is they're putting up a 150-megawatt solar plant, a 70-megawatt wind plant, so that'll produce about 220 megawatts, between those two technologies, as well as 150 megawatts of batteries. So you produce the power, it goes into battery, and that can help you to, to extend the supply of electricity. 
Uh, the transmission lines are right there, so you don't have to build anything. Uh, you just feed it into the grid and goes to wherever the power is needed. Now, of course, the building of the of the new plants and so on and the batteries will cost money, and that's part of what ESCOM got the money from. But ESCOM has also signed an agreement with the Cape University of Technology, because at the at the Cape University of Technology, they've developed curricula and a program around retraining people to switch from coal into solar industry or to go into the wind industry. And those uh, curricula programs have now been accepted by SASOL for use of and by ESCOM. By, by, sorry, by ESCOM. I don't know why I keep on saying SASOL. Uh, for uh, for use at Kumaki, and they will also use it at Thurtslake and the other stations. So there you're retraining people. A third aspect which is taking place at the moment in Kumaki is that you use the land, which is available around the power station, for agricultural purposes. So you establish uh, small farmers there and enable them to grow food for the local area and so on. And it's all part and parcel of learning how to live with this transition. And one can only uh, one can only learn as one goes on. I think that's what this comment is doing. It's interesting that you say that under the debater raised 180 million for a training centre at Hootsley and observed that there are 16,000 vacancies right now in solar and wind industry. So people are going to lose jobs, but there will also be new opportunities. Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, you know, if you think about it, 16,000 vacancies in an industry which is really flourishing. I mean, a lot of wind farms have been built, a lot of solar farms have been have been built. So, so they're looking for skills. They don't have enough skills. 60,000 vacancies, and we have millions of people unemployed. It is just such a logical fit. Now, not everybody who will be retrenched from a power station will necessarily get a job at a wind farm. Well, let's just be realistic about that. But you are creating new jobs in a new industry, and you are helping people training people to get into those industries. So that's the that's the upside of the transition. That's also the just element of the transition. Such huge changes will not come without resistance. Oh, absolutely. What's happening politically? Well, politically, you basically have two groups out of serve uh, to go to the one group, which is jokingly known as the Green Taliban. They are absolutely against anything except wind and solar, and of course, batteries. Now, that's a, it's a nice pure position to have, but uh, that's not how it's going to be for, for, for quite a while. So, Africa will still use coal for a long time, and we will probably have to look at nuclear for base power as well. And you cannot have renewables if you don't have gas. The big thing about gas, as you know from, from your house or you know from a gas stove, uh, it's dispatchable. You can switch it on and off. You cannot switch a coal-fired power station on and off. You also cannot switch a nuclear power station on and off. So you need the, you need dispatchable power as part of your mix. So the idea that only wind and only solar and nothing else will serve South Africa's future energy needs is a bit, uh, is very pure, uh, uh, but it's, it's a bit extreme. And the, the people that are really far on that side have now gone so far as to lobby international governments and international philanthropies not to give any money to South Africa because of Africa is not closing down coal completely. So that's that's the one side of the political spectrum. On the other side of the political spectrum, you have people with an interest in the coal industry or just people with a political interest in coal. And they're saying that people will lose their jobs, which is quite right. Towns will die, which is quite right. 
and they have much more validity in their argument than the other side, I dare say. But industries decline. In this country, the gold mining industry declined and is a shadow of what it was. Uh, agriculture has shed hundreds of thousands of jobs after the deregulation of agriculture in 1996. Um, telecom is a shadow of what it was. Many people have lost their jobs because technology has driven change. So industries change. That is how life eats. It's like the sun rising in city. Uh, you can't stop that. What you can do is to try and manage the fallout as well as possible. Now, if you compare the Just Energy Transition Plan now with training centers of commodity and retraining people and creating new economic activity, you compare that to the way that we handled uh, or not handled the decline of the gold mining industry or how we've not handled the decline of employment and agriculture or not handled the decline at the SOEs like Telcom and, and Transnet and others, then this is much, much better than anything that we've done in the past. In the past, we've never really paid any attention. We spoke about a social contract and social upliftment, but uh, after all was said and done, much more was, uh, was actually said than done. Here with energy, there is a chance of managing the, the negative fallouts from the process more effectively. There will still be bodies in the street, make no mistake, but at least you can try and minimize the bodies. I'm going to just um, lift out three of your so what's. The first one, you say the catastrophe of load shedding is actually galvanizing the transition to green energy. Expand in a minute. Yeah, look, all of us who read history, uh, people, people who are interested in life, yeah, must be struck by the irony of what's going on here. We're having really a catastrophe with load shedding. I don't think anybody will disagree with that statement. But this catastrophe is also spurring the country along to alternatives. If we had 100% electricity supply all the time coming from coal, from coal-fired power stations, we would not have started the just transition. We would have kept pumping out those 435 tons of carbon equivalent emissions every year, and we would have had no commercial or political incentive uh, to change. Load shedding, paradoxically, and what must be one of the biggest ironies in our history, is actually pushing the country towards a, a, an energy transition. The fact that we now are a democracy and an open political society is also forcing that transition to look at the just element, something that we didn't do in the decline of gold mine, we didn't do in agriculture, the other examples I've mentioned. So I think we are in that sense quite lucky that we have to do the transition, we're forced to do it, but uh, the fact that we are a democracy is helping us to do it in a more just way. Uh, I also want to make the, the point later that, that South Africa's got a long political commitment to, to climate, to the whole climate change process. The uh, World Summit on Sustainable Development was held here in Johannesburg. Uh, one of the COP meetings were held in Durban. Uh, we've agreed to the, uh, originally to the Kyoto Protocol when that collapsed after the US was drawn. We agreed to Paris. Trump took the U.S. out of uh, Paris. We stayed, and we we were committed to the process all the way through. So it is not true or not correct that we've now suddenly woken up and signed on to this. I think that's an important perspective to bring. So one of the so what's is the long political commitment, and this is merely a practical outflow of that commitment. 
The other point you make that I think is is really important for people to note is that this is not simple and it's not going to happen overnight. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, this Just Energy plan covers only the first five years of a process that will run to 2050. So there will be a multiple transitions. It's not just one. Komati will transition, Grootvle will transition, Eskom will transition, but the whole country over time will transition. The auto industry will transition. The logistics industry will transition with hydrogen and so on. So it's a, it's several transitions. It will come over a multitude of years. It's not going to be an overnight story. It will cost many, many multi-funds to, to pay for all this. Uh, it's a whole new ballgame. And as a country, we will have to learn, and we will learn, to adjust to it and to play according to a new set of, new set of roles. The role of ESCON? Um, one can be provocative and say ESCON will, will decline, and you can say it's finished and clear. That's not necessarily the case, but it certainly will have a much diminished role. That is the whole purpose of the changes going on. Well, that's the whole outcome. Where we had five years ago, ten years ago, a monopoly supplier of electricity that belonged to the state, you will move to a competitive market in electricity belonging to private sector players, certainly on the generation side. If you take transmission out of ISCOM as well, then it will not be left with very much. It will become a shadow of its former self. But I think what is important here, I've written about this and we've covered it, but what's important here is that we must distinguish between ISCOM and electricity. Even if we say, for purposes of the argument, that ISCOM is kaput, it's finished and clear. That doesn't mean that electricity is finished and clear, in spite of the current load shedding. Simply because so much more money is going into new generating capacity in new technologies. And that's where the future electricity will come from. So draw a distinction between ISCOM and electricity. They are increasingly not the same. Thank you very much. This uh, draws a picture of a quite different future. Sounds almost like the Industrial Revolution, where steam came into the picture and changed everything. Well, I think that's a very fair comparison. You know, we like to talk about the fourth Industrial Revolution as, as technology and digital and so on, and that's, of course, correct. But the Green Revolution is certainly also going to be a, a, an Industrial Revolution of enormous magnitude. Uh, and technology, of course, will help with that. Thank you for listening to the So What podcast. If you enjoy this content, please don't forget to leave a review and a rating, and please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, tell your friends. Remember, you can find a written version of all JP's content at jplandman.co.za.